first of all, welcome everyone. My name is Maggie Mullen. I use they, them pronouns. I'm a licensed clinical social worker. Um, and I'm going to be presenting to you all today about DBT informed interventions for working with folks experiencing psychosis. So welcome and good morning. So just to give you a bit of a roadmap as we get started this morning. So we are going to be split up into two days. So today and tomorrow morning as well. And I'm going to give you a little kind of snippet on research. Why are we talking about this thing? Um, we're going to talk about how do we adapt DBT-informed interventions for people experiencing psychosis more generally. And then we're going to get into strategies and skills really for the rest of today and then all of tomorrow when we meet together. So thinking about specific skills, strategies, things you can be using with clients right away. And then we will wrap up. So just as kind of a caveat to start, what we're going to be talking about today are skills and principles of DBT that are adapted to fit the needs of clients experiencing psychosis. What we are not going to be discussing, however, is what it means to have a fully adherent DBT program. Um, I'm part of a DBT adherent program. Um, I love a full DBT program, and that's not going to be the topic for today. If you're interested in that type of thing, I have some slides at the end that talk about where you can get further training. And these interventions are really meant to not necessarily be a standalone treatment for psychosis. I find that instead they work really well as an adjunct to treatments like CBT for psychosis and or medications if your clients are interested in that type of thing. Those are two interventions that we know work really well for people experiencing psychosis. So let's start by talking about what does DBT mean in the first place. So DBT frankly has a very fancy name, um, Dialectical Behavioral Therapy, and I like to kind of break it down so that you all are on the same page about what we're talking about here. So dialectical starts with, uh, as some of my clients also like to say, diabolical behavior therapy. So dialectical means a synthesis or integration of opposites. Uh, the primary dialectic in DBT that at any given time that we're trying to balance is the seemingly opposite strategies of acceptance on one hand and change on the other. So for example, DBT therapists accept clients exactly as they are, while also acknowledging that they need to change in order to reach their goals. And the skills that we offer in DBT really are balanced between acceptance and change strategies, and we're going to talk about that more in detail a little later. The B for behavior means that we take a behavioral approach to therapy, meaning that we assess situations and target behaviors that are relevant to our clients' goals in order to figure out how to solve the problems that they have in their lives. So in behaviorism, one question that you'll hear me ask regularly uh, throughout this training but ongoing is, what is the function of this behavior? Trying to understand what it is that is happening exactly, what the client might be getting out of it, what in their environment might be reinforcing this type of behavior. So for example, if a client is uh, regularly threatening suicide, for example, to their loved one, we might ask the question of what is the function of this client threat making this threat over and over again? Right? What's happening in their environment? What's happening for them specifically that's keeping it going? And then therapy, y'all know what that is. So I like to mention this about DBT for those of you who are newer to this treatment, um, because one of my favorite things about DBT personally is that it was developed by and really for people who struggle with extreme emotion dysregulation. So in recent years, Dr. Marsha Linehan, who is the you know, creator of DBT, has spoken publicly about her struggles with suicide, hospitalization, self-harm as a young adult. And she talks about that she made a pledge when she was hospitalized as a youth that if she could get out of this hell, that she would devote her life to helping other people get out of the same hell. And I particularly like this because I don't think there are a lot of treatments, at least where people are publicly open about 
dealing with the same problems that their clients they develop this is for. I think there's a lot of power in that kind of disability justice model of nothing about us without us that DBT really brings to the table. So DBT really developed in the 80s out of a CBT base. Um, and really what Dr. Linehan found was that clients who were um, experiencing extreme emotion dysregulation found that a traditional kind of more change-oriented base of CBT felt invalidating to them. And that caused frequent ruptures in the therapeutic relationship. And so really the reason DBT was developed was to say, let's bring in these important change elements of CBT while also focusing again on that acceptance side. So clients can feel validated and seen for who they are and what they're experiencing in order to make those changes that are gonna make their lives feel more, life feel like it's more worth living at that point. So since its development back in the 80s, DBT has been evaluated in many randomized control trials conducted both in the US and around the world. This map here that you're seeing on the screen um, is actually from 2019. There have been more countries that have been added to this map, but I unfortunately can't find the unupdated version of it just yet. Um, but to say that DBT with some cultural adaptations, meaning we want to make sure that our skills and the way that we offer the things in DBT that we offer reflect the cultures of our clients we're working with. So with that notion in mind, that DBT is effective across culture. So to shift gears for a second, now that we've kind of introduced DBT a little bit, I want to talk about psychosis so that we're all on the same page and how we're thinking about an understanding it that might be different than how you were trained. So the way we consider psychosis in the work that I do is as an unshared experience that occurs across a spectrum. Unshared experience can be anything, right? From um, hearing voices, right? That's something that somebody else doesn't share who is in the same room as me, for example. Um, or it could be, uh, you know, seeing things out of the corner of my eyes, et cetera. So the reason we talk about this on a spectrum is that we wanna normalize the experience of psychosis, right? For a long time, I think as researchers, as therapists, as mental health people, we've really relegated psychosis to, you know, people with schizophrenia or people with these severe kind of persistent psychotic disorders. When in reality, actually almost everyone in the population, regardless of mental health status, experiences psychosis at some point. And I'm gonna tell you about this a little bit. So for example, um, when I have a, part of my job function is that I'm on call a few weeks throughout the course of my year. And what that means is somebody can call me 24 seven and I have to answer the phone um, in order to go into the emergency room to do an evaluation. And what happens when I'm on call regularly is that I will hear my cell phone ring. And when I look down to answer it, I will see there's no phone call coming in, there's no missed call, nothing. And it might make me frustrated in that moment, but does it cause significant impairment? Probably not, unless it's happening frequently or it's really bothersome. But what I've experienced is an auditory hallucination, right? If my spouse is in that same room and I say to my spouse, like, did you hear my phone ring? They're gonna be like, no. And there's no evidence, right, that supports that that had happened in terms of looking at your cell phone data then. So many of us have experienced some version of that before, right? Uh, maybe we felt a sensation of somebody kind of tapping on our shoulder, we turn around, no one's there, right? All kinds of versions of this. And so those are the types of experiences that are on that left side of the spectrum here, where we talk about them being less distressing and don't interfere with your daily functioning as much. Now, people who experience, or excuse me, who are diagnosed with psychotic spectrum disorders tend to fall into the category of, at least at some point, 
on the far right end of the spectrum, right? Very distressing symptoms at some point or experiences causing significant impairment. And the thing about somebody with a psychotic spectrum disorder is that they may also move up and down this spectrum depending on what's happening in their life, right? Depending on their stress level, depending on uh, what's happening in their home environment, depending on what's happening with their medication, et cetera. And so we really want to talk about this from this framework that I introduced to all of my clients of, you know, you may be in a different place depending on the day, depending on the week, but also all of us fall into this. And psychosis doesn't have to be stigmatized as greatly as it is, I think, just more generally across the U.S. culture. So before we can get into psychosis a little bit more, I think it's really important that we talk about some of the equity issues that result in poor treatment for psychosis. So what we know is that people with psychosis face significant stigma and deal with pretty massive barriers when it comes to things like employment and housing. They face high rates of suicide, self-harm, drug use, traumatic experiences, including things like violence, institutionalization, and incarceration. And I think really more so than almost any other group, um, people with psychosis are overlooked by the mental health field until pretty recently. So for example, if you're a bit of a research nerd like I can be, um, if you look at almost any piece of research that examines a psychotherapy intervention, what you're gonna see is that there was a rule out for participants who experience chronic psychosis. So usually they'll say something like, um, you know, people with schizophrenia, schizoaffective disorder, bipolar disorder, chronic psychosis, some, some version of languaging like that were excluded from this study. And I personally find that very odd because the same types of what we used to call delusional beliefs occur in other diagnoses, but we don't exclude them so aggressively from treatment. So for example, with eating disorders, right? We see people's distorted beliefs about their body to the point that they're willing to risk significant health issues or even death, right? With OCD, we see distorted beliefs about your own power uh, over the universe. So for example, if I do this checking behavior, then um, I have control over what happens in the world, right? If I check the stove this one more time, then that means my house won't burn down. Um, or even with depression, right? Distorted beliefs about your self-worth to the point that maybe you wanna hurt yourself. And unfortunately, what this leads to is an overemphasis as, on medication as the primary and only treatment for psychosis, even though we know how much therapy can actually be helpful for this group of people. And of course, this is particularly problematic for people who are Black, Indigenous, or people of color who are more likely to be negatively impacted by psychosis due to disproportionate exposure to environmental stressors, racialized trauma, et cetera. So as we put these two worlds together of DBT and emotion dysregulation, as well as psychosis, one of the kind of uh, lingering pieces of history that impacts people in this category is that for a long time, clinicians and researchers assumed that people experiencing psychosis didn't feel emotions in the same way as other people because they didn't show it through their body language or affect, right? That kind of classic negative uh, symptoms that happen to a lot of people with schizophrenia, like a flat affect, you know, less expressive body language, et cetera, was happening. And so therefore people assumed, well, they're just not experiencing those emotions. What we know now though is that that is simply false and that people with psychotic dis spectrum disorders actually struggle a lot with emotion dysregulation and that uh, challenging emotions are actually consistently associated with an increase in paranoid or suspicious thinking as well as a predictor of paranoid episodes. So to say this a different way, 
Um, people who are struggling with challenging emotions, right, which is most of us, but particularly people with psychosis, tend to then experience more suspicious thinking or more paranoia as a result of not knowing necessarily how to deal with those challenging emotions. So part of what this puts us at is figuring out how do we help people fill in that gap, learn to regulate their emotions better. So specifically what we see as far as difficulties is people with psychosis talk about having greater difficulties with things like emotional clarity, meaning specifically identifying, describing, and understanding their emotions. They tend to experience more difficulty with emotional acceptance, so accepting your emotions for what they are. More difficulty with engaging in goal-directed behaviors when they experience negative emotions, meaning it might be more difficult to brush your teeth or do your hygiene task if you're experiencing challenging emotions. And lastly, uh, folks with psychosis have more difficulty with a willingness to experience emotional distress in the pursuit of meaningful activities in life. Meaning again, doing things that might otherwise bring you joy or meaning through the world are harder to pursue because it's harder to push through emotional distress for people with uh, psychosis. And there's lots of, I think, um, ideas as to why this is. My personal hypothesis is that if you're already experiencing a lot of challenging emotions because your psychotic experiences are challenging, why add another thing to your plate that's going to make things harder to kind of push through? So, you know, again, this kind of all adds up together. And what we find as part of that is then people with psychosis often get caught in this vicious cycle where their strong emotions make it more likely that their psychotic experiences will worsen. And then their psychotic experiences tend to cause their emotions to escalate even more. So for example, I might have a client share with me that she is feeling really sad and really ashamed because she got reprimanded at work. And as a result of this increase in sadness and shame, she is then more likely to experience things like distressing voices, saying critical things to her like, uh, you can't trust anyone anymore. And then in turn, the experience of those challenging voices is going to possibly cause her to feel maybe anger or fear that comes up in response. And this cycle then just continues with her suspicious thoughts and fearful emotions increasing. And in many people's cases, ends with things like um, isolating yourself or self-harming or something to try to basically break out of that cycle, which makes total sense, right, when we're suffering in that way. And really, this is where I think DBT skills come into handy so much, is that we can break that cycle of rather than, um, for example, uh, self-harming or isolating or whatever kind of problem behavior our client might engage in, figuring out a healthier or more adaptive way, maybe more effective way to intervene. So what we see around DBT <clears throat> is that in the research, DBT outperformed control treatments when it came to reducing basically all of the problems on this page. So drug use, dissociation, self-injury, impulsivity, hopelessness, depression. I'm not going to read all of these, but you all can see here on the screen quite a few things. And what you're going to notice is that all of these either behaviors or experiences are incredibly common amongst people experiencing psychosis. So let's look at this for a second a little more deeply. So the most common kind of comorbid or co-occurring issues that occur for people experiencing psychotic spectrum disorders are things like PTSD. Now we think at least a third of people with schizophrenia experience PTSD. And actually this number, in my opinion, is actually probably higher because there is often a lack of assessment on clinicians' part 
right? Like I'm thinking about sessions where I've had clients come in, maybe discharging from the hospital. There's a lot of crisis happening. I may not think to kind of like uh, assess for PTSD in that moment, right? And I may not do that. And also our clients may underreport to us. And a lot of that might have to do with things like um, their trauma comes from the experience of being hospitalized, of being uh, taken in custody by police, right? Uh, of, you know, all kinds of things that can come up. And so they may not trust us to talk to us about that in the first place. Next, we see social anxiety disorder, meaning about a third of people also with psychosis meet full criteria for social anxiety disorder. Um, and I don't necessarily mean just day-to-day -day social anxiety, I mean actually meeting full criteria for that DSM diagnosis. And one of the best ways we can deal with uh, social anxiety as well as PTSD is through exposure-based protocols, which are an important part of DBT as well. So next we're looking on this list, drug use problems, right? This is probably one that most people are very familiar with um, is that we see, again, substance use issues amongst folks experiencing psychotic spectrum disorders to be extremely high. Uh, so again, we see uh, use of what we call like illegal drugs, right? So illicit substances as around 27.5% cannabis use. So marijuana use around 26%, alcohol use around 24% and stimulant use around 7.3%. And when I say use, I don't necessarily just mean like casual use, recreational use. I mean um, use that comes with particular problems, meaning sometimes that is dependence, but other times that means problems in day-to-day -day life, increasing uh, experiences of psychosis, et cetera. Next, self-injury is on the list. Again, something that I think we don't commonly talk about amongst people experiencing psychosis. And what we know is that people with psychosis or psychotic spectrum disorders most commonly use cutting to regulate their emotions. So that form of self-harm. So again, it's really important that we assess with our clients um, what kind of self-injurious behavior they may be engaging in. And lastly, this one, of course, I think really breaks my heart and probably most of you who are in this room working with folks experiencing psychosis is that the lifetime rate of suicide amongst people with psychotic spectrum disorders is 10% and is the largest contributor to the decreased life expectancy amongst people with schizophrenia. And for those of you who are working with young adults, first episode psychosis is a particularly high period, excuse me, high risk period for suicide in which that risk elevates by about 60% within the first year of treatment as compared to later stages of uh, psychosis. So again, when somebody is first experiencing psychosis is when they are at higher risk for dying by suicide, unfortunately. So again, as we name all these co-occurring issues, I think it's important for us to keep in mind that these behaviors or experience make sense for a lot of our folks with psychosis to experience, right? When you're struggling with something as difficult as chronic psychosis can be, it makes sense that you um, might self-harm as a way to get out of this cycle, right? Of, of uh, you know, challenging emotions and uh, experiences of psychosis or use drugs to do that, or you know, wanna hurt yourself or be out of this world, or again, the experiences I think the mental health system are set up of that can increase or uh, expose us more to traumatic experiences. So these things, again, make sense in the context of what's happening, and we want to work to improve our clients' ability to cope with all that they're going through. Okay, so let's talk about goals of DBT. So DBT is not a suicide prevention program. I hear people say that a lot of the time. It is not. And the reason why we say we are not a suicide prevention program is because we are not focused on simply keeping clients alive, but living a miserable life. I don't want that for my clients. 
Instead, we are helping them build a life that is worth staying alive for. So building a meaningful life. And for each client, their life worth living is going to look really unique, right? Because specifically embedded in their cultural viewpoints, their personal goals, their value system, their interests. And it's really our job as providers to help them get there. The second goal of DBT is dialectical synthesis, meaning helping your clients learn to think in a more balanced way than going to extremes in their thinking and then acting on those beliefs. Another way of putting this is, is walking the middle path or finding what's left out in a client's thinking or in life. And again, this is really essential for people experiencing psychosis who deal with distorted or distressing thoughts, again, formerly known as delusional beliefs, fairly commonly. And lastly, I mentioned this earlier, but DBT is a principles-driven treatment that includes protocols, meaning if someone has a panic disorder, if they experience depression, PTSD, social anxiety disorder, whatever other issue they're dealing with, which again, a lot of our clients have complex uh, presentations, it is important that we also offer the evidence-based treatments for those issues they're dealing with as part of the protocol for doing DBT. Um, Dr. Linda DeMath, who's sort of a DBT person, um, describes it as like DBT offering a big house in which to embed other evidence-based treatments. So we want to use those protocols as part of this. So don't feel like because you're choosing a DBT lane, that doesn't mean that you shouldn't also be doing things that treat the other issues they're dealing with. Okay. So again, the main dialectic I mentioned before that we are trying to find a middle path between is acceptance and change. So you can see on these scales here on the left side, acceptance on the right side, change. And this really looks like finding a balance between validation, which is an acceptance-based strategy, and problem solving, which is a change-based strategy. And what you may notice for yourself as you start to do DBT of any kind, is that you may notice that you're one of two different types of therapists. You might be a therapist who leans more on the acceptance side, or you might be a therapist who leans more on the problem-solving side. I'm very clear, I am a problem-solving therapist, and my job as a DBT therapist is to up my acceptance game big time, because I love to solve problems, I like to get people moving forward, but the more that I miss sitting with their emotions exactly where they're at and being with them when they're in a moment of suffering, I steamroll those experiences, right? I steamroll their emotions. And that is important that I make sure I make space for both of those things. So, you know, kind of something to reflect on for yourself is maybe which of those categories you fall into. Or are you one of these excellent therapists who balances both, in which case, like, good for you. Nice work. <laughs> so as far as the skill modules go that we're going to be talking about moving forward, on the left side, we see acceptance-based strategies. So the first of which is mindfulness, which is again, the practice of being fully aware and present in the moment, as well as distress tolerance, which is about learning to tolerate pain in challenging situations without doing something to make it worse. The right side are the change-based strategies. And that are, or excuse me, that starts with things like emotion regulation, where we work on decreasing your vulnerability to painful emotions and changing existing emotions, as well as interpersonal effectiveness, which is about skills for asking what you want, saying no, and managing communication more effectively. So I'm just noticing a question in the chat here I want to look at. Uh, somebody asking, are there any core symptoms of psychosis? So the way that we think about this, right, is 
Um, any type of hallucination tends to be the most common experience amongst people with psychosis. And again, of those five senses that you can have hallucinations in, the most common are hearing voices or hearing sounds. So auditory hallucinations are the most common experience of our folks experiencing psychosis. Visual hallucinations might be next. Um, what we also see for somebody with a psychotic spectrum disorder are, again, that those categories of positive, quote unquote, meaning um, added to, not positive as in good, and negative emotions, meaning things that we expect to be there that aren't there, as well as disorganized symptoms. So things like difficulty um, thinking through things through clearly, right? Having a, a difficulty expressing yourself verbally, et cetera. Um, so all of those areas are what we would consider kind of the core experiences of a psychotic disorder. However, in your question, I don't know if this is what you're getting at, is um, there are all kinds of different experiences of psychosis though, right? So meaning you don't necessarily have to have that psychotic spectrum disorder diagnosis where you're meeting criteria for positive, negative, and disorganized symptoms. You may simply have the experience again of um, feeling, having suspicious thoughts, right? Having difficulty trusting others to the point of paranoia. Um, we might have, again, auditory hallucinations, visual hallucinations, tactile hallucinations, et cetera, as part of that. So how do we match DBT to the needs of people experiencing psychosis? So in order to make DBT slightly more accessible to this group of folks, we take a similar approach to that of um, Dr. Julie Brown, who created the DBT for Cognitive Impairments Treatment Protocol. So we start with thinking about making what we're offering concrete. Right? For some of our folks who experience psychosis, they may either have some cognitive uh, issues related to their psychosis. They may also be more likely to have a low education level by virtue of the fact that having psychosis at a young age for a lot of people disrupts your ability to get through school. So we want to make things concrete, meaning we want to make these skills as easy to understand as possible. So that might look like using language and materials that are simpler, more straightforward, and free of psychological jargon. With my handouts that I use, for example, I just take out text, right? I try to make things in bigger font, more straightforward, fewer metaphors, for example, because those are less concrete, to make, again, things just easier to understand for the clients I'm working with. Next, we want to make what we're offering accessible. And in this case, that means free and easy to access options. And again, this is really an equity issue. So the people with psychosis are disproportionately on fixed incomes like SSI and more likely to have unstable housing. So I wanna make sure that what I'm offering to my client is something that they can actually access. So is it something that's accessible by bus, for example? Is it something that um, is free? Uh, is it something that they can get to or a family member can provide to them or whatever? So making that easy for them. Next, we have to account for those negative symptoms I was mentioning before. So we have to keep in mind things like um, that would mask a client's outward emotional expression, such as flat affect uh, that we were talking about earlier. And this is really where two strategies come into mind. Things like helping our client be more proactive and asking how they feel. So helping them identify their emotions more actively and really in coaching them then how to share with others what they're feeling, because it may not be as obvious through their body language or through their um, you know, facial affect and expressions. Next, we have to account for societal stigma, right? As I mentioned before, US society is not good to people with psychosis. 
And so we need to take into consideration how our client's environment of likely stigma and discrimination is going to shape their experience of using what I offer them. So for example, um, some of what we're going to be talking about are things like uh, having a client communicate directly with their voices, right? Essentially to like make peace with them or make friends with them. And it's important that I consider when we talk in that conversation about what are situations in which that's going to be safe to do, right? And you're, if you're at home, if you're in your car or with your loved ones versus where somebody's going to potentially call the police on you because they are fearful that you're a danger to yourself or to them because you're out on public transit talking to yourself. So we want to take into consideration, again, that environmental influence of how that might impact them. And then lastly, uh, making this treatment culturally responsive, right? DBT, similar to, I think, almost all therapeutic treatments, was created by and for white people. And so this has shifted over the years, I think, in really important ways that have made it more culturally responsive. However, it's really important that you be reflecting with your client, does this work for you, right? Is this something that you would ever do? Um, in the examples that you provide, for example, to them of how you might use this yourself or others might use this, and to make sure that this is reflecting the population that you're working with as well. So I often kind of think of that as like the check-in part of really just making sure that this lands well with your clients. So we are going to talk a little bit about what the primary interventions are in DBT. So DBT, like I mentioned before, is a principles-based treatment. It is not a skills-based treatment. However, we are actually going to primarily be talking about skills training together for the sake of this presentation. So what you see here, uh, we see in DBT, the primary interventions are things like validation, problem solving, we talked about this a little earlier, contingency management, so the heart of behaviorism, observing limits, right? Meaning our therapist's own personal limits as well as our clients. Skills training, which I mentioned is going to be the bulk of this training. Um, Exposure-based interventions and then cognitive modification, right? That's where the CBT part of this comes in. So when I talk with my clients about DBT, um, it's really important that we maintain a level of transparency with them. Meaning I do this with all of my clients across the board, but particularly for folks with psychosis, right? They are often used to having providers who uh, don't maybe explain to them what's happening, right? Because they're afraid that they're going to have a reaction or not agree with it. Or they're used to being institutionalized, right? If they express something about what's happening with them or um, just being invalidated even, right? So having a loved one say, well, that's not true. Right? Like, I'm not, you're not experiencing a voice, or I don't hear that, or something that feels like somebody's talking down to you or is patronizing. And so, as an approach in general, I just really like to stress that it's important to be transparent in our work with clients. So, what this looks like is I often will pull out these um, couple of lists we're going to look at here, which are kind of the foundation of how we approach our clients as DBT therapists. So, first and foremost is the assumptions we make about clients. So what we are assuming is that clients are doing the best they can, that clients want to improve, that they must learn new behaviors both in therapy and the context of their day-to-day -day life, meaning what I do in therapy matters, but it matters even more that I do this in my day-to-day -day life, otherwise it doesn't translate, um, that clients cannot fail in DBT, that clients may not have caused all of their problems, and they have to solve them anyway. This one's a real hard pill for a lot of our clients to swallow, but it, it's a real one. And lastly, that clients need to do better, try harder, and or be more, more motivated to change. And what you're going to notice probably on this list is that you're going to see two very different sides of the dialectic that are being balanced. 
right? We assume that our clients are doing the best we can, and we know that they need to do better in order to reach their goals. So really balancing two different kind of viewpoints here. Next is assumptions about treatment. So again, the most caring thing that a treatment provider can do is help clients change in ways that bring them closer to their own ultimate goals, that clarity, precision, and compassion are of the utmost importance, that the therapeutic relationship is a real relationship between equals. This is a real area in which I think DBT diverges from other therapy interventions, right? So the way I would approach this is talking to my clients like, I'm the expert on DBT and you are the expert on your life. And we are a team to help you build a life worth living. So we need to come together around this. But this also includes the idea that we are both humans, right? We're both going through things. There's suffering on both ends, right? In different degrees. And that it is really important that we come together in order to work on this. This also includes things like I ask for feedback all the time from my clients. I expect to give it to them and I expect them to give it back to me. Because again, if we're in a real relationship, this is a practice ground for how you can um, interact with people in your life. How can you be more interpersonally effective? How can you provide feedback? How can you let people know how you're feeling, et cetera? Next, and this really I think is in the same vein, is that principles of behavior are universal, meaning that they affect therapists no less than clients. So if I have a client who is engaging either intentionally or unintentionally in a behavior that is constantly punishing to me, I'm going to let them know that and say, I need to, you to work on reinforcing me as well, because my goal is to be there for you as much as possible. But when these things are happening over and over again, they're impacting our relationship, right? The same way that I'm going to expect that client to do the same on the other end. Next is that therapists need support and that therapists can fail, right? So you're going to notice this, again, this difference here between um, clients cannot fail DBT that we have over here and that therapists can fail, right? We are fallible. So in DBT, we shift that focus to look at our clients from a non-judgmental lens and maintain empathy for them. So when we look at a client's behavior, as I mentioned before, the question we're going to be asking ourselves is, what is the function of this behavior? And not only does this help you target the ineffective behavior more effectively because you're actually targeting it specifically, but it also helps you build empathy for your client, right? Uh, so their behavior or our client's behavior is often, I think, desperate, unskillful attempts to get their needs met, right? There, there's something that is missing for them and they are doing their best to try to get that need met. And so what we think of in DBT is that this then is an issue where we need to focus on helping clients be more skillful or effective in the areas of, say, emotion regulation, distress tolerance, interpersonal effectiveness, et cetera. And so our jobs as therapists is to help our clients focus on being more skillful rather than punishing them or pushing them away. It's really hard, for example, to get fired as a client in DBT. There has to be really extreme circumstances that, for that to happen because more often than not, our clients with really complex problems and behaviors have been fired a lot by therapists before us. They, a lot of our clients might come in with trust issues around that, right? Because of, again, institutionalization, incarceration, I mean, all the number of things that can happen to our clients before they come into our doors. And so again, the spirit of transparency here is talking about what are the few situations in which I wouldn't work with you and being really clear about the rules of your program, for example, if those are different than maybe the DBT kind of principles are. So as I mentioned before, it's really important to build trust and rapport right from the start with people experiencing psychosis, because again, our clients can have previously had bad experiences coming into our door. And also they might be experiencing suspicious thoughts that may or may not have to do with us. 
And so this is where I use radical genuineness from DBT to start building that relationship. And radical genuineness is about talking to your clients as an equal and like we're both humans. So this is particularly important, again, because we have, as I mentioned before, had a lot of uh, experiences with our clients who are getting talked down to outside of here, right? So again, by loved ones, by frankly, the world, all institutions they might come into contact with, et cetera. And so I employ radical genuineness by talking authentically about my own reactions to things, right? I curse, I use a lot of humor and irreverence. Um, I speak like who I am outside of therapy. I don't have a therapist voice. And my clients tend to connect with me and I think in general kind of DBT therapists more quickly for this reason, because they know I'm being genuine and I'm not bullshitting them. So next, in terms of communication styles in DBT, we also use irreverent communication. And this is really in order to get our clients' attention, to shift their affective response, and or to get them to see something from a completely different point of view. Typically, this means you're responding in an unorthodox manner, like using humor where a more serious response is expected, or a more serious response when the client didn't take the thing seriously. So for example, um, this one comes from a client of mine, or excuse me, a colleague of mine who I adore. And he told me that when he had a client who said, if you don't answer the phone when I call, I'm going to cut myself. Well, his response was, what if I'm on the toilet with diarrhea? Right? And this is really a way to throw your client's affective response off, right? I think your client is probably really not used to having somebody mention something like that in response, right? I, I frankly wouldn't be myself, right? That often would be a surprise to me. Um, but really because our client often expects one response from people. And when we give them a completely different unexpected one, it changes the conversation. It changes the narrative of where we go next. And lastly, in DBT, we use um, self-disclosure. And this means we often share examples of how we use skills in our own lives. And how much we share is, of course, based on our personal limits, as always. But for example, I might describe how I use the skill of urge surfing to avoid um, flicking off a driver who cut me off on my way to work that, the other day. And clients tend to be more engaged when we share about ourselves, right? I think you've probably experienced this yourself in individual therapy or in groups or whatever settings that you're working in, where you kind of notice a client's kind of meet your gaze, right? Or their ears kind of perk up in response to something you're sharing. And lastly, I, I said there were only three things, but actually there are four, uh, is that we use warm engagement and are responsive to our clients. So for example, um, we respond to our clients with what they're saying with interest and concern. So if somebody gives me a recommendation for something, a TV show, a recipe, a something, I make a point to write it down. And if I have the opportunity to actually you know, act on that thing, I will try to as well. And these strategies really work together, both to reduce the perceived power differential between the therapist and client, but also to communicate trust and respect for our client and deepen the attachment and intimacy of the relationship. All right, and there's another question in the chat too. It says, could also be helpful in validating frustrations expressed by the client. Yeah, definitely. Somebody is saying it takes modeling behaviors a step further. Yep. And then I think that the radical genuineness helps diminish the power imbalance and makes a the client feel valued as a person, not just as a client. Absolutely. That's a big part of what we're trying to do. And I'll just name this again. I know we're not necessarily doing a full DBT therapy presentation. I'm really kind of giving you DBT informed principles and strategies. But one thing that is also different about therapists uh, in DBT is that when I finish 
uh, DBT stage one or stage two treatment with a client, it is not uncommon for us to continue our relationship beyond therapy. We start and move into a realm called becoming an ex-therapist um, where I might meet up with my client for coffee to talk about how their things are going in their life. I'm no longer their therapist, but again, because we're cultivating a real relationship between equals, cutting off a relationship entirely is not really that beneficial for a lot of people's life. Again, we still maintain professional boundaries, uh, personal limits, et cetera, around that, but that is not an uncommon practice in DBT and it's part of actually how the treatment works. Okay, let's get back to it. So let's talk about validation for a second. So in DBT, we say that all emotions are valid, meaning that they make sense in some way, right? There either are or were survival strategies, and maybe they come from a place of trauma, invalidation, something said by a critical voice they hear, et cetera, right? There's a reason that we experience the emotions we do. And there's also a reason uh, that we respond the way we do and reminding yourself of this can help you build empathy for your client. Again, from that perspective of like, what's the function of this behavior? Another helpful reminder is like, all behaviors come from, or excuse me, all, both behaviors, but also emotions are valid and come from someplace. And in particular, I find it actually really easy to validate people's experience with, emotion, with psychosis. However, I have a lot of people who say to me, um, I don't know how to validate my client because I'm afraid that I'm going to reinforce their delusional belief about something. And what I typically tell them is that you can always start by validating a client's emotions, right? That's an easy place to start because it helps them ensure that they're feeling heard and that their struggle is being acknowledged. And again, right, it's really common for people with psychosis to be chronically invalidated by others, right? Saying things to them like that's not real or you're crazy when they talk about their suspicious thoughts or distressing beliefs. So I encourage you as a provider or also as a loved one uh, to really help people feel validated in their emotions around psychosis first and foremost. So for example, I might say to a client, you know, of course you feel scared when you think your family is after you. Like I'd feel that way too if I were having those types of thoughts. And then I can follow up with things like curious, non-judgmental questions, like tell me about what the voices say or what are the thoughts like? Um, what makes you worry? And taking this approach doesn't necessarily mean you agree with what they're saying, but instead you're trying to understand their perspective. And particularly if you're working with um, the loved ones of your folks, uh, clients who are experiencing psychosis, these are really helpful strategies to teach them is how to communicate, right? How to um, really be non-judgmental, be curious to understand their experience and validate their emotions. Again, it doesn't mean you're agreeing with everything, but you're thinking things through. So the other piece to mention here, we're not going to get into this in tremendous detail, but I think it's worth mentioning, is that all emotions are valid. And the other thing we say in DBT is that not all emotions are justified, meaning they may not meet the facts of the current situation we're in, and acting on them may not be super effective. Right, so for example, I might have a client who went through maybe a traumatic breakup previously um, in her past, and that was really tough for her. She has, you know, worries about being abandoned, et cetera. And when I have a conversation with her about her new partner, and her new partner sends a text saying, like, hey, can we talk about some things tonight? And her reaction is um, anger and maybe fear, right? Maybe there's that fear of abandonment that comes up or that anger of like, F you, you're about to leave me, et cetera. I might have that client then examine the, 
facts of the current situation, that current emotion that's coming up in the here and now, not the past stuff, and say, does it make sense to act on that extreme anger that's coming up for you right now or that fear that's coming up based on what you know about your current partner, right? Is there actually something that is happening in the here and now that makes you believe that they're going to leave you? It's not based on the past stuff. The past stuff is real and very valid, but what about here and now? So we think through what kind of skills are we going to use and what approach will we take if that emotion may not be justified in that situation. So that's more of the emotion regulation stuff we're going to talk about tomorrow. All right, so we are going to jump into the four uh, modules of DBT now. Again, we're moving into kind of skills only treatment right now. And again, these are things that uh, I think of as the greatest hits that you can use right away with your clients. There are a lot more options in DBT and again, a lot more training that you can get in this, but just things again that you can start using right away with folks. So let's start with mindfulness. And in DBT, we always start with mindfulness because it is the foundation of everything we do. Meaning, um, well, first let's define mindfulness first before I get into that. So mindfulness really is the practice of bringing intentional awareness to your experience in the present moment in a non-judgmental and compassionate way. And that accepts reality as it is, right? In the case of our clients with psychosis, that might be the reality that they are experiencing in that moment rather than trying to push it away. So many of you are probably familiar with mindfulness. I feel like um, both because it is something that's been co-opted from Zen practices in the Eastern world, but also because it's kind of a pop psychology term these days. So I'm not necessarily gonna get into the nuts and bolts of mindfulness today. Instead, I'm gonna kind of focus a little bit about how we use mindfulness in DBT and some of the strategies you can use from it. So, I mentioned before that DBT is the found, or excuse me, mindfulness is the foundation of DBT. And really this is because the idea that you need to know that you need to use skills is based on your mindfulness awareness of what's happening. So for example, you need to know that you're feeling emotionally overwhelmed before you can do anything about it. So you have to have that mindful ability to say, okay, I'm feeling angry right now, right? Or I'm feeling the urge to self-harm or I'm feeling whatever it is before you can do something about it. So that is why I think really mindfulness is the grounding practice of DBT is just developing self-awareness, right? The ability to see kind of your reality as it is. So when it comes to mindfulness and psychosis, I know in my own training, when I first started working with people with psychosis, I had a supervisor tell me, you know, you can't do mindfulness with people experiencing psychosis, right? They can't tolerate that. And what we know now is that that's actually not true. However, we can think about some ways to use it more effectively for people experiencing psychosis. And because we think of mindfulness, not just as like the eyes closed meditation practice that some people have, we think of mindfulness as you can literally do anything mindfully because it's a principles-based approach, right? Meaning you're non-judgmental, uh, you are extending compassion, you are in the here and now, right? Those are kind of the principles of it. I can brush my teeth mindfully, I can give this training mindfully, et cetera, right? So when it comes to people experiencing psychosis, there's three general rules. The first is you want to accommodate a shorter time for the practice. Shorter time looks different for every client. Sometimes it's like 30 seconds that my client can tolerate of this. And for other clients, it might be a couple minutes. I am really making that judgment based on their feedback and what I'm noticing with them, right? What I see happening for that client. 
that when you do that mindfulness, that you are providing more guidance than silent time. And we'll t- I'm going to talk about how that looks, but actually engaging with them more rather than leaving long pauses for them to self-reflect. And that that guidance should include specific mention of psychotic experiences in a normalizing way. So, for example, if I'm working with a client, let's call her Sandra, I might start with a mindfulness activity that's maybe focused on her breath, right? And maybe it's, I choose a shorter time, like maybe one or two minutes. Again, I'm going to kind of get a read on that client based on what, how they respond. And I plan to guide her through that activity using more prompts so she can focus on uh, my voice. And as I'm doing that, I'd also mention things like if you notice any distressing thoughts or hear any voices, for example, that are taking your attention away, gently bring your attention back to your breath or to my voice, right? So I'm really talking about the uh, everyday experiences of somebody with psychosis as part of that to normalize it. And if my client is having difficulty tolerating something again because of some of that internal stimuli or internal preoccupation or voices or whatever it is, I might say, okay, let's not have you close your eyes and do something that's kind of self-inward focused. Let's instead have you do something that's out in the world. So again, uh, we can do it like with the toothbrushing thing that I talked about. Um, It could be about, um, you know, again, kind of those standard mindfulness practices of like counting, uh, you know, colors in the room, for example, or things like that, that she can notice externally if that feels like it's easier. I could have her stare at a point on the floor with her eyes open, but to distract her gaze from other things, right? There's so many variations on mindfulness that we can use. And one of the things that, uh, you know, Dr. Marshall Linehan, we talked about before, shares about mindfulness is mindfulness can be great when we can do those, you know, quiet environment, eyes closed practices. But most of the time we need to use mindfulness is when we are interacting with others or there are things happening around us in the world, right? The times I get most distressed tend to be the times that I'm like in a big crowd and there's, it's busy and there's a lot going on and there's distractions. And so the more I can practice mindfulness in those types of settings, the better off I'm going to be used, be at kind of building that mindfulness muscle. So these are all things to take into consideration when you work with your clients. So we're going to talk about just one kind of component of mindfulness right now, which is around non-judgmental stance. And um, again, mindfulness really means paying attention to the present moment in a non-judgmental way. So we're going to talk just for a minute about what judgments are and what they're not and why we kind of try to work around them. So judgments are shorthand ways of describing preferences and consequences. So for example, if I'm out on a hike out here, uh, I might encounter a rattlesnake when I'm out. And what is going to happen is I'm going to say to myself something like bad or danger or like run, right? It's a judgment that I'm using as a shorthand informational tool to tell me how to react in that moment, right? It's a good survival strategy. Because I'm not going to take the time to say to myself something like, this is a potentially dangerous animal because it might bite me and its venom is going to get into my bloodstream. And then I might have to be airlifted out of the situation. And that's going to cost me a lot of money that's not going to be covered by insurance, et cetera. Right? I don't have time for that. I need to react to that rattlesnake in that moment appropriately. And judgments are a perfect way to do that. However, judgments aren't as effective in all situations as they are in something like that because they tend to replace facts. Meaning that when we judge, we often stop observing what's really there and get caught up in that judgment. 
And judgments tend to feed challenging or negative emotions, right? Like anger, guilt, shame, jealousy, et cetera. So for example, it's the difference between describing my body as ugly or gross, my emotions might jump up versus describing my body as the texture, the shade, the uh, color, whatever, in a more uh, non-judgmental way, where I'm just kind of observing, describing the facts of what's there. And I use this idea of non-judgmental stance frequently when I'm working with my clients experiencing psychosis. And I use it a lot for my clients as a strategy to reduce their challenging emotions, but also myself, right? Because, um, you know, we deal with clients who are oftentimes engaging in uh, behaviors that are maybe unusual, right? Either their thoughts or their behaviors or their speech are unusual in some way. And it is natural to have judgments come up. And those judgments don't tend to serve me when I'm working with those clients. So we are going to work on just a quick exercise together, a quick activity. And what I'm going to have you all do for a second is I want you to call to mind for a moment the client that you most struggle with right now. I, if you can't think of a client, it could be a family member, it could be a celebrity, it can be whoever you can call to mind right now that you've got plenty of judgments with or about. And I want you to put in the chat for a moment a few of those judgments. And um, we are a judgment full space right now. I'm encouraging you to put those in, but there's no judgments from us in this environment around what you put in that chat. So again, you may um, find yourself perhaps censoring some of your judgments. Some of them might be a little bit more crude than you'd be willing to put in a professional chat, but please put them in here now as much as you feel comfortable. Okay, hot mess. Oh yeah, very specific, irresponsible, snob irresponsible, annoying and entitled, stubborn. Yeah, what else? Manipulative, self-centered, delegate other work, complaining, chronic, lack, ooh, a lot of irresponsibles here. Mean and manipulative, narcissist, entitled, rude, ooh, priorities are off. Okay. Selfish, disrespectful, inconsistent, dependent, rude unwilling to accept help. Okay. Yeah. There's real themes here that we're noticing too, right? Amongst some of these judgments. So now I want you to take a second and check in on your emotions right now. So you've been thinking about this client really judgmentally. What are the emotions you're feeling? And I'm going to have you put those in the chat. Okay. Frustration, guilt, annoyance. Ooh, a lot of people are annoyed. Okay. Frustration. Feeling ineffective. Yeah exhausted. Doesn't feel good, somebody writes. Yeah, <laughs> agreed. <laughs> frustration. I see a lot of frustration here. Yeah, like fighting against something, exhaustion, feeling sad. Okay, great, everyone. Okay. Oh, and some guilt. Okay. So what I'm going to have you all do next, you've done a great job so far. I want you to now Describe that same client or that same person non-judgmentally. And I'm going to give you some prompts to help you with that if that's useful. So they're here on this slide, right? Meaning we're going to replace those judgments with descriptions of facts, consequences, or preference. So like, for example, if you and I are in the same room, we're going to more or less describe things the same way, right? Things that are observable uh, and that are factual. So you could describe something as, I wish something was different, I don't like. That's actually a preference, right? This is effective or ineffective behavior for, I don't know, getting your needs met, whatever. 
this thing happened in this way at this time. Again, this client said this in this way at this time, for example. You're just trying to bring this back to a non-judgmental description. Maybe it's the thing that you'd write in your clinical note, right? Because we're meant to be non-judgmental in our clinical notes. But thinking from that perspective, and again, I'm going to have you pop that in the chat right now. If you've had a second to think about it. Okay. I wish they prioritized their housing over their drinking. Yeah. Again, a preference. And a lot of times people feel frustration because what we want for a client is different than what our client maybe is capable of doing or wants for themselves. Those goals are often off. And that is difficult for us to, to stomach as clinicians or as providers. I wish the client could feel safe leaving her home. I don't like when she assigns me work. I wish she thought about other people at times. This person is smart and resourceful. So actually, I'm going to call you on this one. Those are positive judgments that you put in there, which frankly help change the emotional tone of things. But I want you to go even to the non-judgmental kind of way of describing, like what are the things about them that are resourceful and or smart? What are the behaviors they perform? What are the things that are adaptive about them? The person is doing their best to survive. Uh-huh. I don't like that she says no one is helping her when she has many people trying to meet with her. I wish she would understood new parenting techniques and they were raised differently than their kids. Yeah. Okay. Okay, I prefer the client express herself in a less combative manner. Again, just shift that word combative, right? That's a judgment there, but figuring out again, maybe a more effective way of communicating with me. Again, we're just trying to take all, suck the judgment out of the room here. I wish the client did not hit staff members. Yeah, that's a real basic one. That seems right. <laughs> okay, I'm not gonna have time to read all of these, but you are doing a really good job coming up with these. And frankly, this is a hard practice. So as a DBT clinician, one of the things we have is we do a weekly consult meeting that's considered therapy for the therapist. Because, you know, again, we often work with really challenging complex clients for which we need our own support. And one of the things we do is we have a bell that we ring in the room when there is a judgment that somebody uses. Because we are really trying to actively shift our language to more behaviorally specific language that is non-judgmental. So you're doing some of this practice yourself. All right, so now same thing. I want you to, now that you've written your non-judgmental statement, check in with your emotions, write those in the chat. Okay, so I see calm, more at peace, optimistic. Okay, feeling some fatigue, more accepting, compassion, calm, relieved and accepting, understanding, relief, feeling content, less stressed, what I'm noticing, oh, somebody says sad instead of angry, right? What I'm noticing is we don't expect you to not have emotions in response to your clients, right? I actually wouldn't want you to say everything's chill now that I've described my client this way because it makes sense to have reactions. And so it seems like some of your emotions are just shifting form or taking less intensity, which is really what we look for when we go to a non-judgmental stance, right? For example, rather than having that anger reaction, it shifts into sadness, which is often the primary emotion that's there anyway. So you're doing a great job, it sounds like, of really just getting in touch with your emotions and noticing where the shift is happening here. So this might be a practice you want to use on your own teams or for yourself, as well as for your clients, is figuring out how do I shift the conversation from a judgmental one into a non-judgmental one? because it is going to change probably the way I provide treatment to my client and the way I interact with them. And frankly, the level of understanding and compassion you have for them often shifts when we do something like this. Okay, great. 
All right, so let's look into distress tolerance next. So um, distress tolerance skills are skills that are meant to be used in situations that are highly stressful and short term. So this might be a situation where you're feeling very stressed or emotional and feel the urge to act on those emotions in some way that may not be of service to you, right? That could involve yelling at somebody, cutting yourself, getting drunk, self-isolating, whatever's on your problem list. And we use distress tolerance skills essentially to get through a difficult situation without doing something to make it worse, right? Something we might regret later on, for example. So these skills are really about no longer needing to feel held hostage by your emotions. That, for example, you can feel your emotions without having to act on the urges that accompany them, right? Because almost all emotions come with an urge to do something, right? If I get angry, I might want to punch somebody. If I feel sad, I might want to isolate myself or hurt myself, right? There's often something that accompanies it. Now, the caveat here is that these skills should not be used in situations where there is imminent danger. So if your client is experiencing abuse, for example, in that moment, we do not encourage them to use skills to tolerate that moment. Instead, we encourage them to work on change-oriented skills that get them to safety. So we are gonna start with the tip skill. Okay, so this skill is one of my personal favorites. Um, and the reason why is because it works quickly and involves physiological changes. And a lot of my clients like that type of thing. They feel much more bought into something that is like body-based than mind-based. Um, and I think a lot of that has to do with like our trust around, I don't know, the, the way Western medicine looks, it's more focused on our body than our mental health, right? So the way that this skill works is it's really meant to be in situations when you are completely engulfed in what's called a motion mind, meaning when you're behavior and thinking is driven exclusively by your emotions. And if we're thinking about this on a scale of like zero to 10, with 10 being really strong, overwhelming emotions, this typically is when I'm, our clients are at like a six or seven or higher. Again, where they are not accessing long-term goals, they're really just caught up in the emotion of that moment. So um, you can use this skill either as uh, using these kind of one by one or you can use them stacked, depending on what your client is needing and what's helpful to them. So let's start with the T for temperature first. So the temperature skill revolves around this um, reflex that we all have as mammals called the mammalian dive reflex. So just for like a little moment in you know uh, human biology or physiology here, um, what happens to us as humans or mammals when we dive into a cold body of water um, we're not really meant to survive without oxygen, right? That's like one of the things that we're dependent on as mammals. And so when we jump into that cold body of water, when our face hits that water, one of the things that happens is that our heart rate slows down. And it slows down essentially in an effort to help us survive longer underwater, right? Kind of a survival mechanism. And so we try to harness this mammalian dive reflex skill using the temperature skill, because as you all know, when we get physiologically aroused, meaning um, when we get uh, upset about something, if we're having emotional overwhelm, we have a ton of physical sensations that happen, right? Our heart rate increases, we're sweating, we have muscle tension, the whole thing, right? So we can do this in two ways, right? To slow down our heart rate, essentially. And the first is to, I'm gonna take off my glasses so I can show you this, have a cold bowl of water, right? Or you can fill up a sink with water. 
And what you're having your client do is bend over, put their face in water, making sure that their, I think this is called the orbital bone, the bone underneath their eyes is covered. And you're having them hold their breath for 20, 30 seconds, whatever they can tolerate realistically. And then bringing their head back out and checking in with themselves to see, do I feel any more calm? If they don't, you might try it again a few more times, but you're kind of doing this in rounds of like 20 or 30 seconds in, 20 or 30 seconds out. I do this skill a lot in my groups when I'm in person with people, because what I can do is bring in a heart rate monitor and they can see the way their heart rate drops when they do this. So I usually have them like exercise a little bit to get themselves kind of like um, activated. And then we do this and it's kind of a cool thing to do as almost like a science experiment. The other way that they can do this, if they don't have access to, you know, filling up a cold bowl of water, is anything that's frozen or cold. So like peas in the freezer, ice packs. Um, one thing we provide at my clinic is those little, uh, they're like first aid ice packs that you can break them so they don't have to stay cold if people don't have access to a freezer at that moment. And what your client is going to do is simulate the same thing. They're going to, again, put those ice packs over this bone here. Again, please somebody correct me if it's not called orbital. I'm really going to go with it. But I think it's this bone here beneath your eye. And you're also going to have them bend over like they're putting their face in that water and hold their breath again for 20 or 30 seconds with their face down and then bring it back out again. And that's the whole skill. My clients like this one in particular because it's real fast, right? As soon as you have access to that cold water or to that ice pack, um, they tend to notice a change happen for themselves. And so the more we can work with our clients maybe to say, okay, if I'm like coaching a client to use this, I'm going to ask them before, hey, um, where's your emotion at that scale? Like zero to 10. I want them to tell me beforehand. It's a 10, right? For example, like it's a 10 out of 10. It's couldn't it be worse. Because then I'm going to ask them after we use that skill, where's it at now? Ha what's helped, right? Has this actually, you has this gone down or does it feel the same? So kind of giving them some kind of a, uh, a marker. If you're working with people for whom though that like a a number scale doesn't work for them for whatever reason. You can also do, again, kind of one of those, uh, like it, it's intense or it's medium or low. You can use whatever language helps you kind of capture how bad it is for them. And again, that just gives our, us some information around, did it work? It also helps your client reflect on the fact that the intensity of their emotion has changed. And, right, and that's part of that mindfulness practice is awareness of how intense your emotion is at that moment. So any questions on the temperature part of the skill before we move on to the next ones? Okay. One caveat, again, to this skill is that if your client has a heart condition, you're going to want to check in with their um, cardiologist or whoever their attending person is around that because that can impact their heart functioning. If you work with clients who experience anorexia that might have an impact on their heart, you also want to check in with their PCP or whoever their provider is around that. So just making sure you know that too. Okay, so somebody asked, what if they're not willing to engage in these skills? How do you go about offering the options? Great question. Um, okay, uh, if my clients, so first of all, I try to increase my clients' willingness to use these skills by doing them with them. So first and foremost, like I try to make myself look like a fool doing them so they don't feel as uncomfortable doing them themselves. So that's number one. Um, I run a lot of groups, and one of the things that I find is that people are more willing to do things with other people who are not their therapists too. So sometimes I draw on something like that. I might, if they have you know, loved ones that they live with or family, teach those same things to their family because they might be more willing to be encouraged by you know, a loved one doing it with them. Or sometimes I just have to find the right skill. 
And that is why I think in DBT and a lot of treatments, we offer a poo-poo platter of different skills because some work for some clients and some are things they're more willing to do than others. And that's just kind of how it goes. So there are other strategies I might use around problem solving or what's getting in the way and things like that that I'm going to explore with them. But that's my quick answer to your question that I think probably deserves a whole hour lecture on it in and of itself. Okay, I'm just seeing one other question here. Uh, my last training with you all, I tried this out personally and I was dysregulated in that. And wow, immediate physiological relief and was able to think clearly. Yeah, again, these skills are uh, driven for our clients, but it's important that we use them ourselves because A, I can tell a client this works. Uh, I can tell them about my experience with that, but also because um, we get dysregulated too. We're humans, that's part of the experience. Um, I taught this one to my niece recently and she was like, she was like, wow, this is amazing, right? So, you know, teach them to people in your life, spread the love is the way I think about these skills. Okay, I'm gonna give you all intense exercise next because we literally have two minutes left together. I'm gonna give this one to you quickly and we will finish this skill when we meet tomorrow. So intense exercise is literally as simple as it sounds. This means you are doing anything with your client that gets their heart rate up. All of our clients have different uh, abilities and fitness levels and all kinds of things when it comes to exercise. So you may need to assess with them what's possible, right? It could be, I have some clients who are like super sharp shape and they're doing push-ups on my ground you know, doing like 100 push-ups at a time. I can't do that kind of thing, but that's what they need to get their heart rate up. I have some clients for whom uh, maybe they're paralyzed, for example, or don't have great use of their legs or lower limbs. They do kind of like sit and be fit, kind of arm exercises. You can adapt this really for anyone's needs. And again, what you're trying to do is give them the opportunity to engage in exercise long enough that they start to sweat, right? Till their heart rate gets up, until their physiology changes. Because one of the things that happens at that point is again, our mindset starts to shift, our emotions start to shift when we change our body chemistry. And so one of the things that works for a lot of our clients is to exercise, right? That's one of the many benefits of exercise for our clients too. So again, that skill is as simple as it sounds. There's not actually a lot more to it. The, the bigger thing maybe to that person's question earlier is how do you get your client to do it? And that is a different story that we'll talk about another time too. Take care everyone, I'll see you tomorrow at the same time. If you have a chance, try some of these skills out tonight if you can. Um, and otherwise, I'll see you tomorrow. Thank you, everyone.